Today's episode does deal with stories of spiritual abuse and suicide. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. In the 1960s and 70s, new spiritual movements were springing up in response to those disaffected by the free love movement. A Dallas-based group became linked to several deaths in which the estates were all left to the group leader. A coincidence or something much darker? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. We are going to jump right into this one because it is a long one and I don't want to lose my voice before I finish recording. But I will remind you real quickly that Crime Lines is on YouTube now. I put up two new videos every week. It is not the same content that you hear on Crime Lines. So please subscribe over there if you would like more true crime content from me. But like I've said before, if all you can handle of me is once a week, Nothing is changing here on the podcast. So today's episode is about Terry Lee, Thomas Benson, Wilder, Cooley, Johnson, Hoffman, Keenly, more commonly known as just Terry Hoffman. Terry was born Terry Thomas in 1938 to an impoverished family in Fort Stockton, Texas. As a small child, she would have to pitch in and work on a farm to help support the family. She would later claim that at the age of four, she had her first heavenly vision. While sitting under a tree, three men in robes appeared to her. They basically told her she could accomplish anything if she wanted it badly enough and counseled her to trust in God in times of trouble. And trouble did come. Terry's mother died of tuberculosis, leaving Terry's alcoholic father to raise her and her siblings alone. He ended up sending Terry to a Lutheran orphanage when she was around nine years old. And the orphanage was in Round Rock, Texas, which is north of Austin and about five and a half hours away from her home. It's not clear how much she saw of her family after this point, but she did connect with some of her siblings as adults. The orphanage Terry was in was run by nuns, which I actually didn't know Lutherans had. So I looked it up, and it seems that almost all Lutheran orders are in Europe, which also explains why Terry was mostly cared for by a nun from Germany. Terry said she learned a lot about elementals from this nun, the fire, water, earth, air, ether type elementals, not what you would necessarily expect in a Lutheran-run orphanage. Additionally, she was taught about meditation. Eventually, Terry became convinced that she was the reincarnation of St. Teresa of Avila, who was a mystic whose mother also died when she was a child and she was sent to live with nuns. Two years after arriving at the orphanage, Terry was adopted by a couple in Dallas and given the surname Benson. 
Terry found her adoptive parents to be largely loving, but overprotective. I'm not sure how much understanding they necessarily had in the 1940s about the impact of moving from family to orphanage to new family, what that does to a child and their ability to trust and bond with people. I don't know that it was very well understood. But even if we take that out of the equation, which I definitely don't think we should, but if we did, Terry had grown up in rural Texas. Then she was sent to live in an institutionalized setting. And now she was in a family in a regular neighborhood and expected to just fit right in in this new Dallas suburban life. Terry has said that she grew close to her father, but she had a very difficult relationship with her mother, who it seems expected her to blend into the family and into her new life better than she did. At the age of 15, Terry was dating an 18-year-old truck driver named John Wilder. Her parents did not approve of the relationship, and Terry pushed it as far as she could. As in, she ran off to Oklahoma in May 1953 and married him at the age of 15. She lied about her age, claiming to be 18. Though the marriage could have been automatically annulled when this was revealed, the couple stayed together and returned to Dallas as a married couple. Terry then dropped out of school. After about a year and a half of marriage, their daughter Kathy was born in 1954. Four years later, they had a son named Kenneth, and then five years after that, they had another daughter named Virginia. Terry stayed home with the children while John continued to drive his truck. Being a stay-at-home mom in the 1950s with a husband who was gone a lot, Terry was looking for social opportunities. Around the time their first child, Kathy, was born, Terry was starting to get back into meditation like she had learned as a child, but she was also getting into metaphysics, things about discussing and pondering the meaning of life, the nature of truth, and she found friends who were asking the same questions. But soon Terry wasn't just meeting with people to meditate and to discuss these questions. She was leading the meditations and she was answering the questions. They saw her as very insightful and intelligent, which she was. She was also, by most reports, very charming. Terry threw herself into this emerging role as a group leader. She took classes to increase her knowledge, including a hypnosis class. She read classic occult books, with Edgar Cayce being a particular favorite of Terry's. And by the late 1960s, she was hosting and leading weekly meditation classes. A lot of the people Terry worked with at this time were rather young. They were high schoolers and young adults, young college students. It all started with one young man she met who was dealing with drug addiction. She taught him about meditation, and that helped him get and stay sober. He asked her to talk to his friends, and soon she was leading these classes for many of them. The timing of Terry's entrance into this guru-style leadership is important. In the late 1960s and early 70s, 
there were a lot of hippies and ex-hippies who found that the free lifestyle came with a price, particularly when highly addictive drugs were involved. There became a need for spiritual and religious groups that supported the love, acceptance, peace, and non-conventional life that came from the hippie movement but did not involve drugs. A number of groups, particularly those focused on things like meditation, yoga, and the metaphysical, began to grow in this time. And Terry Hoffman's group was one of them. Terry took a common-sense approach to problem-solving, so her advice seemed practical on the surface. She incorporated familiar Judeo-Christian beliefs with those from other religions, which is also something that was common in these groups. She kept love and acceptance at the core of her teachings and encouraged the drug-free life that would allow everyone's mind to be clear. But then Terry also had some teachings that were less helpful. For one, she taught that negative or critical thoughts were literally deadly. If you were afraid of cancer, you could actually cause yourself to get cancer through your negative thoughts. She taught her followers to banish such things, which we know can have a detrimental effect on mental health. We are meant to think, feel, and process things, not just stuff it down or ignore it. Terry also taught that attachments and bonds to other people would impede spiritual development. You shouldn't let any relationship get in the way of the time you needed to do your spiritual work. And Terry meant any relationship, even those with your own children. Beyond this, Terry began over the years to claim special powers. She could travel outside of her body, communicate with the dead, see the future and the past, including past lives, and she could protect people from bad things happening to them. Terry's group, particularly when it was mostly these older teenagers, did have a high turnover rate. Everything would sound good at first, and then Terry would talk about levitating in bed, and they would decide she was just too out there for them. One person who did not believe in her powers at all was her husband, John Wilder. And he also didn't agree with the direction Terry's work was going, particularly when it came to meddling in people's lives. He certainly didn't think she should be telling people to break off relationships. It was in the late 1960s that the group had an official name for the first time, and Terry named it Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul, generally just called Conscious Development. She started accepting donations in exchange for spiritual development classes and lessons and even counseling sessions. People would give her large amounts of money, like $75, which would be over $500 in today's money, for a single lesson or a single therapy session. One woman, Sandra Cleaver, was really enamored with Terry and her teachings. 
She gave Terry expensive pieces of jewelry, and John had tried to make Sandy take them back, but she insisted she wanted Terry to have them. John was not a fan of how much money Terry was bringing in, and it really wasn't so much about the money as how she was earning it. He thought she was bilking her followers. The marriage was falling apart, and Terry filed for divorce in December 1970. However, Terry's mother was worried about her as well, with all this talk of psychic abilities and such. So with John and her mother signing papers, Terry was admitted to the hospital involuntarily for a psychiatric evaluation. While we do not know the results of the psychiatric evaluation, Terry lost custody of her two younger children in the divorce. In the early 1970s, custody largely defaulted to the mother, so I imagine the exam did have some impact. Terry did retain custody of the oldest daughter, who would have been 16 or 17 at the time the divorce was finalized. Four months after her divorce, 33-year-old Terry Wilder married 20-year-old follower Glenn Cooley. Glenn was a college student when he met Terry, and he was battling substance abuse. He was an introverted, artistic young man who was always looking for somewhere to fit in. And Terry's unconditional love and willingness to help him get off drugs was enough to make him a devoted follower. Glenn quit school after the wedding and began working for Terry and Conscious Development full-time. His family was concerned with this. As much as they were glad that Glenn was living sober, Terry was older than he was, and there was a power imbalance with her being his religious leader. And they felt that Terry was keeping him from them. Anytime Glenn visited home, They were never more than a half hour into the visit before Terry would call or would honk the horn from the driveway to let him know it was time to leave. But Glenn was devoted to Terry, and he wasn't the only one. Sandy Cleaver had become Terry's right hand, and she made a helpful ally as the group grew. And by helpful, I mean she had a significant trust fund. When Sandy met Terry, she was married to Chuck Cleaver, her college sweetheart. They had settled in Dallas after Chuck's job took them there. In 1964, their daughter, Devereaux, was born. Two years later, Sandy's father died in a plane crash, and this was a blow to Sandy, who had effectively lost her mother at the age of 12 when her mother was institutionalized. Sandy felt she missed the chance to talk to her father one last time, to resolve things, to ask questions, and just to say goodbye. And it may have been her father's death in 1966 that pushed her toward the spiritual. Sandy didn't find what she was looking for in church, and she was also inspired toward the supernatural after reading some of Edgar Cayce's works. This is how she ended up finding Terry's group, which was probably the largest and most organized metaphysical group in Dallas at the time. 
the belief system aligned with how Sandy was leaning, likely because Terry and Sandy had both started their journeys with Edgar Casey. And alike what happened in Terry's marriage, this path had put Sandy's marriage in jeopardy. Chuck accepted Sandy's belief system even though he did not share it. He didn't fight her on anything until it came to their daughter, Devereaux. Sandy was getting medications from an alleged doctor in Mexico who would diagnose patients without seeing them. He would do it through psychic or cosmic readings and then ship them a bunch of unlabeled pills. Sandy took whatever medicine showed up at the door, which Chuck didn't love, but that was her choice. Then Sandy decided to start giving medications to their daughter, who was only six years old at the time. Chuck was against giving any of this medication to Devereaux for obvious reasons. Sandy didn't even seem to know for sure what was in the pills she was taking. So Chuck took some of them to a local doctor who tested them and learned they were nothing. They were just placebos, like what they use in medical testing. They are dirt cheap to get since they're just sugar or starch shaped to look like a real pill. But that only meant that those pills were harmless. What about other treatments that might come up? Sandy was applying no critical thinking to this. She accepted whatever her friends or Terry told her to the point she was taking 20 placebo pills a day that someone she never met had prescribed to her and believed it was curing all of her ills. It got to the point that Chuck and Sandy's marriage seemed all but over, but he didn't dare leave because he wanted to stay and protect Devereaux, particularly after she got scarlet fever and Sandy refused to take her to the doctor. Sandy was trying to treat her with meditation and incense. Chuck basically waited until Sandy fell asleep and then took Devereaux to the doctor where she was properly diagnosed and treated. Sandy, in line with Terry's teachings about negative thoughts, believed Chuck's bad vibrations were what caused Devereaux's health issues. Terry told Sandy that she put a protective shield around Devereaux that protected her from everything except Chuck's negative thoughts. Those were too powerful. That was why Devereaux got sick. Terry obviously was a point of contention in Sandy's marriage, and how could she not be? She was literally telling Sandy that Chuck was harming their daughter with his negative thoughts. Sandy was giving Terry expensive jewelry and thousands of dollars. Chuck believed Terry was crossing the line into being a scammer, which Sandy would hear nothing about. Chuck told of one incident where Sandy gave Terry a piece of custom-made jewelry that had several diamonds in it. Terry kept it for a while, but then returned it saying that the diamonds weren't real. Sandy then filed a lawsuit against the jeweler who had set the diamonds, claiming he kept the original diamonds and put in worthless stones. It never crossed Sandy's mind 
that Terry had swapped them out. But to Chuck, it was pretty obvious what had happened. Right around the time Terry divorced her first husband and married Glenn Cooley, so we're talking April 1971, Sandy filed for divorce and told Chuck it was because he impeded her spiritual growth. To protect Devereaux, Chuck filed for custody. Like I mentioned with Terry's divorce, custody generally defaulted to the mother in the early 1970s, so Chuck had an uphill battle. According to Chuck, he had a meeting with his lawyer and Sandy's lawyer without Sandy there. It was shortly before the custody trial was set to begin, and he said both attorneys believed he had a good chance at winning custody. However, they were worried what Sandy would do if she lost. Would Sandy hurt or kill Devereaux in some twisted sense of protecting her? They both suggested to protect Devereaux, he needed to settle. Chuck ended up agreeing that Sandy would have primary custody, but only on the condition she be prohibited from treating Devereaux with anything not prescribed by a recognized physician admitted to practice in Texas. Sandy did agree to this. And now, without Chuck around, Sandy spent pretty much all of her time with Terry. Devereaux was sometimes carted along, but very often left home with the housekeeper, Louise Watson. At the time, the main source of income for conscious development, and Terry personally, was jewelry that they made. The various stones and rocks were for energy and healing. People bought these more readily than the literature or classes that Terry offered on the metaphysical. So this really became their bread and butter. Terry, Glenn, and Sandy spent a lot of their time making and selling this jewelry. Sandy worked largely for free and ended up becoming Terry's personal assistant. In 1974, Conscious Development was incorporated, and Sandy was listed as the secretary-treasurer for the organization. At this point, Terry averaged 110 people who attended weekly meetings, which is similar to a mid-sized church. Like with any group, there were tiers of involvement. You have those who are showing up every few weeks. You have those there every week without fail. And then you get to those who get even closer, and they get closer to the organization of the group and the running of it. For those on the edges, Terry was perfect. She had a sense for what to say to which person. But if you were around long enough and often enough, you'd notice that she would tell one person they were, say, John the Baptist in a past life, and a month later tell the same thing to someone else. And if you got even closer, you would see the finances of conscious development and Terry's personal finances were one and the same. The more followers Terry got and had donating to her and buying jewelry, the more wealth she accumulated personally. And it wasn't just wealth. Terry began to receive more attention and admiration as the highest master in conscious development. 
where the beliefs of the group and teachings used to be at the center, now Terry was. There were people willing to give her that respect and honor. They saw her as the leader she wanted to be, and they were not put off by the inconsistencies. The closest to her were called teachers, and they had to be appointed personally by Terry. At the height, there were around 40 of them. Of course, Terry's husband, Glenn, was a teacher, but over the course of 1976, he was starting to distance himself a little bit from the group. He told his mother that he was actually considering leaving both the marriage and conscious development entirely. However, it would be Terry who filed for divorce in November 1976, saying that it was a joint decision. Glenn signed a waiver that allowed the divorce to move through the court more quickly. They didn't have children together, so there wasn't really a lot to sort through. But even after Terry filed for divorce, Glenn was still working for the group, still making jewelry, and still in some way being involved. The divorce was final on January 27, 1977, right around the time Terry introduced a new teaching to the group. Terry did deny some of this to some extent, but multiple members said this happened, and there is no reason to think they made it up. The belief was that there were forces called Black Lords that the spiritual masters Terry spoke to told her about. They told her it was time that the group begin fighting the Black Lords. And these beings were not on Earth in the physical sense. They were in the spiritual realms. So the inner circle of the group, meaning those teachers, had to do guided meditations where Terry led them through what to do to fight the Black Lords on another plane. The teachers would get together for these meetings and travel to the spiritual realm to fight. But they needed something to fight with, like a sword. But the swords did not have to be full-sized, just something representing a sword, like those plastic cocktail sticks, were enough. Terry would tell the teachers what evil spirit was in the room and where they were. She would give directions on how they had to move about with their little cocktail spears and destroy them. She would also tell them whether they were successful or not and how many Black Lords they had defeated. These fully mimed battles would continue sometimes for hours. And then the story of the Black Lords evolved a bit. Terry said they began using people as conduits, often people who were former members or those who seemed to have one foot out the door. When Terry would get sick, she said it was a result of her taking a punishment from the Black Lords on behalf of the group, a very Messiah-like action and one that served multiple purposes. One, it drew people closer to her when they viewed her as physically sacrificing for them. And two, it explained why the great master got sick. Illness was caused by negative thoughts, which Terry didn't have, so she couldn't get sick. 
but she did get sick, and this covered for that. At one of the early Black Lord fighting sessions, Terry said that the Black Lords had taken a victim. An actual living person had died, and it was Glenn Cooley, who died just six days after the divorce was final. Glenn had gone up to his parents' cabin to spend the night. The next day, Terry found something he had left in the safe at her house. It was a will and a note. The will part said he left everything to Terry and asked that no one in his family contest the will. The note part sounded like a suicide note. He wrote that what he was doing had nothing to do with his past drug use, his inability to cope, the divorce, or any of that. Glenn wrote that he knew the reason he was doing it, but didn't have the words to explain it. After reading this, Terry and two of her followers, Alice Hoffman and Ben Johnson, drove to the cabin where they found 25-year-old Glenn Cooley in bed, dead of an apparent drug overdose. The death was ruled a suicide, but Terry told her followers that Glenn's death was at the hands of the Black Lords. Now the spiritual fight had entered their physical world, and even worse, it had taken a life. And the way the Black Lords killed people was through poisoning blood. The only cure was bloodletting. Terry admitted the bloodletting happened, but insisted it was not her idea. The amount of blood that would be taken in the letting sessions was a small vial, similar to a very basic blood draw, and Sandy was the one who would draw the blood with a syringe. Now, I have a slight needle phobia, so I almost canceled this episode at this point in the research. I mean, I can read autopsy reports, but let's talk about a blood draw, and suddenly I'm feeling a little lightheaded. There were some in the group who had similar apprehensions with this. It disturbed some of them enough to leave, even those who were teachers. Teachers were as high in the organization as you could get, with the exception of Terry Sandy and whoever Terry's current husband was. At this point, it was Ben Johnson, the person who went with her to check on Glenn at the cabin. They married five months after Glenn's death. The bloodletting was the catalyst to people leaving, though it wasn't the only reason. It occurred to people that they were doing things just because someone told them to. They had put Terry's judgment above their own, sort of like in a cult. So when Terry told them to let Sandy, the treasurer, start taking their blood, it woke them up to what was going on. But even as people were leaving in the late 1970s in the Dallas group, an offshoot group in Chicago was growing. It eventually numbered a couple hundred people by 1980. The members there primarily attended the group for guided meditations. Sandy in Dallas stayed steadfast in her commitment to Terry. Terry told Sandy that her daughter Devereaux, now a teenager, had been taken over by Black Lords. She was now a negative being who was trying to take Sandy's energy. 
It's true Devereaux and Sandy were having conflict, probably more than most teenagers and their parents. That was not because Devereaux was taken over by Black lords, but it's because Sandy had been consistently putting conscious development and Terry first. She would travel with Terry, leaving Devereaux home with their live-in housekeeper Louise. Sandy wouldn't go to Devereaux's basketball games. She wouldn't sit and talk with her about anything other than conscious development because she took Terry's teaching seriously, the one about how relationships shouldn't be allowed to interfere with spiritual growth. So spending the afternoon at a basketball game rather than home meditating or making jewelry with Terry was something Sandy wouldn't do. And Sandy's zealous following of Terry was embarrassing to Devereaux. She started confiding in her friends that she wanted to go live with her father. But in December 1978, things seemed to take a turn for the better. The two had stopped fighting as much, and Devereaux told her father that she and Sandy had started talking like a real mother and daughter. Even Sandy told Chuck about the improved relationship, and she said it was because she finally figured out why she couldn't open up. She had a repressed memory of her father molesting her. Chuck wasn't sure he believed it. Sandy had other reasons to cut herself off from people to avoid heartbreak, like her mother being institutionalized when she was 12, her sister dying in a car accident at the age of 17. She had other reasons, but this repressed memory was an answer that made Sandy feel satisfied that she had figured out why she was the way she was, and that, in turn, made her a more attentive parent to Devereaux, which is what Chuck wanted. With her relationship with Devereaux improving, Sandy was also ready to defy Terry's teaching on relationships once again. She had been dating a fellow group member named Lynn Fairchild, and the two were discussing marriage. Terry told Lynn and Sandy that they shouldn't get married. The thrice-married Terry said that they were meant to be single so that they could focus on their spiritual growth. Terry went so far as saying that her spirit guide Marcus said Sandy spent too much time with her boyfriend. Now, it sounds to me like Terry was afraid of losing her control over Sandy, and just as importantly, Sandy's trust fund, but that's just my opinion, allegedly. But not only did Sandy and Lynn stay together, in spite of what Terry told them, they got engaged. In February 1979, they decided to take a trip to Hawaii as a pre-honeymoon birthday trip for Lynn. And Sandy brought Devereaux along, which was new for her. She was so used to her mother traveling without taking her. And taking her along on a trip with Lynn really had the hallmarks of a regular family vacation. On February 25th, while on their trip, Lynn napped on shore after a 3 p.m. picnic while Sandy and Devereaux took a blue inflatable. I've read that it was actually an air mattress. 
into the lagoon, and they were using it as a raft. They were out on the water when a wave threw them off of the raft, and they both surfaced, but a second wave pulled Devereaux back under. Sandy looked for her under the water but couldn't find her. Sandy then got on top of the coral reef, looking and calling for Devereaux, but she couldn't see her. Lynn woke a little before 6 p.m. and realized that Sandy and Devereaux had not come back to shore. Worried, he called the fire department, which sent a helicopter out. They found Sandy on top of the reef. After rescuing her, they searched until dark for Devereaux with no luck. They had to call it a night and go out first thing in the morning when the sun was up. Sandy was injured from the sharp reef and sent to the hospital in guarded condition. Physically, she was going to be okay, but mentally, she was in shock. When Chuck Cleaver heard his daughter was missing on the water late at night, Dallas time, he booked the first flight he could to get to Honolulu for the next day. But by the time he got to the airport, he learned Devereaux's body had been recovered shortly after daybreak by the helicopter search team. She had drowned. While Chuck was in the air to Hawaii, someone called his house and spoke with a family member. The caller was from Conscious Development and had something the family needed to see. So the family sent someone to go pick it up. It was Devereaux's will. There were actually two wills, both dated August 1978. It's unusual for a 14-year-old to have a will, let alone two, but it's also not common for children to have estates to leave behind. But Devereaux, like her mother, had a trust fund. One of the wills was handwritten, and it left items to various people, but it left her trust fund, which was worth about $125,000, to Conscious Development for the use building a school they had plans for. And like Glenn Cooley's will, it asked that no one contest it. The second will was in legal ease. To give you an example, one line said, I give, devise, and bequeath all of my property, including all rights, titles, and interests of whatever character I may own in and to any property, real, personal, or mixed, wherever situated, to Terry Johnson, who has been to me like a second mother. So in this illegalese will, the money was not left to conscious development, the organization, it wasn't left to a school building fund. The legal language will would have given everything directly to Terry as a human person. Except, minors in Texas cannot have wills. Everything just goes to the parents. No one had to even contest this will because it was invalid on the face of it. Terry got nothing from Devereaux's death except anything Sandy opted to give her. Now, Terry claimed that she actually didn't know about this second legal language will. She only knew about the handwritten one that had been sent to her. But the second will was witnessed and notarized by members of conscious development. So 
everyone who believes people in conscious development did something without Terry's knowledge, raise your hand. Okay, no one. Obviously, Terry knew about this. The will raised a lot of eyebrows. A healthy 14-year-old wrote a will leaving her hefty trust fund to someone, and six months later, she's dead. But the autopsy showed no signs of foul play. There were no additional injuries to her. There were no signs of alcohol or drugs in her system that would have made it difficult for her to swim. Though the news reports at the time did point out that the water was shallow, the investigation determined it was an accident. Currents, even in shallow water, can be strong. Sandy was destroyed by the loss of her daughter. She canceled the wedding, and she was just going through the motions of life. Her brother gently suggested she back away from Terry a little, but Sandy instead pulled closer. After all, Terry could speak to the dead and could help Sandy communicate with her daughter. Sandy even offered others to come over and speak with Devereaux through Terry. And then Terry was able to bond with Sandy on another level. Six months after Devereaux's death, Terry's son Kenneth died at the age of 22 in a construction accident. Soon after the death of her son in 1980, 42-year-old Terry divorced Ben Johnson and rather quickly married Don Hoffman, the husband of Alice Hoffman. Alice was one of the people who found Glenn's body. She and Don divorced the month after Terry and Ben did. Alice then signed a waiver that allowed Don and Terry to marry right away because Texas had a 30-day waiting period from divorce to remarriage. But by signing this waiver, they were able to get married immediately. Alice left conscious development at this point, and Don quit his job to work for Terry full-time. The group had plans to build a school or a retreat or something out in Colorado. In September 1981, 43-year-old Sandy and 77-year-old Louise Watson, Sandy's longtime housekeeper, flew to Colorado to look at some of the property the Conscious Development Group had bought. The pair flew to Colorado Springs on September 8th with return tickets for the 14th. They spent the night in Colorado Springs and then left on the morning of the 9th in their rental car to go to Cripple Creek, which was about an hour away. On September 10th, an Air Force Academy paramedic saw the rental car 450 feet down the side of a cliff. Sandy and Louise had been thrown from the vehicle and likely died immediately. Two days after Sandy and Louise's bodies were recovered, Terry arrived in Colorado to claim them. And then the wills came out. Sandy's original will had been written around the time Devereaux's was, so Devereaux was still alive. Yet, Sandy left everything to Terry. She didn't mention Devereaux in her will at all, not even to specifically disinherit her. Simply didn't mention her. But then in June 1981, which was three months before the car went off the road, Sandy wrote an updated will 
once again leaving everything to Terry, not that there was a ton left to leave. Several months after Devereaux's death, Sandy gifted Terry all of her belongings, even family heirlooms like artwork. She also gave her her house. Sandy kept possession of her things and kept living in her house, but everything was to go to Terry in the event of Sandy's death because now Terry actually owned it all. Sandy even paid rent to live in her own home. But there was some things that Sandy couldn't give to Terry, the money in her trust fund. She can't just withdraw the balance and give it away. Her trust fund was set up where she got a certain amount every year. Except now, with Sandy dead, the will indicated that the rest of the trust fund was left to Terry. Also, it turned out, in the aftermath of Devereaux's death, Sandy took out a $300,000 life insurance policy, which was double the amount recommended by the insurance agent. It was payable to, obviously, Terry. Now, Louise Watson's will is very interesting because it was written shortly before the accident, just like Sandy's had been, but she didn't have very much to leave behind. She named Sandy as the executor and recipient of her estate, with Terry as the alternate in the event Sandy predeceased her. Louise was not part of the group. She wasn't necessarily a fan of the group, so it seemed odd to those who knew her that she would make Terry anything in her will, even just a backup. The investigation into the car accident wasn't clear if it was just that, an accident, or was this a double suicide or a murder-suicide. There were no skid marks leading up to the edge and no evidence Sandy attempted to break. Did Sandy not break because she intended to go over the cliff, or was she just not using enough caution on the mountain road that she wasn't used to. Based on some of Sandy's actions leading up to the trip, it looks like it may have been intentional. For one, she updated her will to reflect the changes in ownership of her possessions. She also wrote her brother a long letter a few weeks before the trip to Colorado. Parts of the letter read like an autobiography, but they include descriptors that her brother wouldn't need, like identifying who their maternal grandparents were. The letter was written like the intended audience wouldn't already know her or know details about her. So it's an odd letter for a brother to get. The letter also went on to praise Terry, and it really stands out that this letter is something that Sandy wrote to purposely make a record for anyone investigating anything. And Sandy did something right before she left that was unusual. Usually, when Sandy would go out of town, which happened with some frequency, she would give the house key to the neighbor kids so they could come in and feed her cat. But before Sandy left for Colorado, not only did she not give them a key or ask for help with the cat, she changed the locks. But where does Louise fit into this? Because she was not a follower of Terry. 
She had told friends before the trip that she wasn't really feeling well and didn't want to go, but Sandy insisted. So it doesn't sound like Louise was planning anything to happen on that trip. But what would Sandy's motive for taking Louise over the cliff with her even be if that is what happened? Louise had very little to leave behind, so it's not like Terry profited from the death in the way we see her profiting in other deaths. Anything else we may speculate about, like what did Louise know about the group or about Sandy or about Terry, is just conjecture. There's no proof she knew any insider information. I'm left thinking, and you may disagree with me here, that going off the road was either an accident or a murder-suicide, because there's just no evidence, even circumstantial, that Louise was in on any plan. She didn't even want to go to Colorado. Now, after the wills were filed, Sandy's family, particularly her brother, opted to challenge it in court. In the papers contesting the will, the attorney wrote that Sandy lacked the ability to exercise freely independent thoughts due to influence exerted by Terry. The attorney accused Terry of using things like hypnosis, Pavlovian conditioning, and psychotherapy to control Sandy. Basically, he's saying she was in a cult, so the will doesn't count. But they didn't stop there. They pointed out that Sandy wasn't the only person who wrote or changed their will due to Terry. Glenn Cooley's will, Devereaux's will, and Louise's will were brought up in the initial filings. However, the judge excluded them when the case went to trial in June 1982. And at trial, Terry was a disaster. She admitted to using hypnosis and tranquilizers both personally and within the group. She denied parts of the group's doctrines, even when the attorney read verbatim from her writings, which of course makes a jury question credibility. Terry admitted that she put the money she got from Sandy's life insurance into her personal account and not into a conscious development account, even though it was Sandy's express desire that the money go to support the group. When asked about the school that Devereaux and Sandy wanted to fund with their estates, Terry admitted there were no plans for the school, not even an artist rendering. Six days into the trial, Terry said enough and sat down to settle with Sandy's brother. She agreed to pay him what amounted to almost 40% of the life insurance policy, He would also get 40% of the proceeds from the sale of Sandy's house, and then they would split everything else 50-50. The month after the trial over the will, D Magazine published an article about Terry and conscious development. It was factual and not scathing, but it did lay bare the details of the group, and it created quite the buzz in Dallas about this quiet, cult-like group operating in the area. Terry slowed things down a bit from here, possibly due to the scrutiny. The group focused more on socializing than guided classes, though Terry did still provide private counseling and body work like acupressure 
to bring in some money. Terry was definitely not used to this attention from outsiders, and she believed she was being persecuted for her unconventional beliefs. She said that the deaths had affected her deeply, and she resented any claims to the contrary. She said she didn't coerce anyone into giving her anything. These wills were no different than someone leaving their estate to a church. Sandy's death had brought a court case in increased scrutiny on the group, and it also left Terry without her right-hand person. But soon a woman named Robin Otztot stepped into that role as Terry's assistant. Robin joined the group back in 1974, and she worked professionally as a counselor for troubled youth. Like Sandy, she filled her space with jewelry and crystals purchased from Terry to ward off negative energy. The longer Robin was in the group, the more paranoid she became about the Black Lords, and she began to isolate herself from her family and even her teenage son. In the mid-1980s, at the age of 41, Robin began a relationship with a supernatural CIA agent. Terry set them up as she claimed she had connections to the CIA and knew several of these dematerialized, aka invisible, agents. And by invisible, I mean that literally no one could see him. The CIA agent's name was George G. As soon as I saw that, I thought, Terry watched too much Brady Bunch. George Glass is famously the name of Jan's imaginary boyfriend. Anyway, Robin journaled about her relationship with George G. And by 1986, they were very close. She wrote about a trip they took to Colorado as well as love letters written between them. According to her writings, the two could not marry because there were concerns over national security. Robin also wrote in 1986 that she was turning against herself. Her spiritual self was fighting with her physical self and with other people's selves. Some in the group came to believe Robin's negative mental or astral or spiritual self was on the attack. In March 1987, a friend from the group named Tammy sent a letter to both Robin and Terry saying she had to distance herself from Robin for her own safety. Robin reached out to Terry for help. Robin said that Tammy's invisible CIA agent boyfriend named Martin was threatening to kill her if anything bad happened to Tammy because of Robin. Robin thought Terry could break the spiritual ties and protect Tammy, which would then in turn protect Robin. Honestly, the details are not entirely clear because while Robin did journal all of this and she wrote letters, everyone she was addressing already shared a foundation of belief and understanding, one that I don't have. So what she wrote doesn't necessarily make sense to me because I don't have the context. I think the other issue is that Robin was dealing with some serious mental health issues 
that also made some of her writings difficult to understand. One thing that is clear is that Robin 100% believed that her mental and spiritual bodies were doing damage to others, including herself, and she could not stop or control it. The Black Lords, in short, had pretty much won the battle against her. In mid-April 1987, Robin called her ex-husband and told him that she had gotten hepatitis from a banana peel and was terminally ill. When he heard a doctor hadn't actually diagnosed her, he suggested she go and get tested. She hesitated, so he set up the appointment for her for two days later. The doctor did do blood work on Tuesday, April 21st. Hours after the appointment, Robin went to see Terry. That night, she went home and took her own life. She was only 42 years old. When her test results came back, they would show no sign of any disease. The note Robin left behind referred to Terry apologizing to her for the offensive, rude, and vulgar things she had said. She said that she loved her, and Robin said nothing in her note about her son. And guess who inherited the most in Robin's will? In the will, which was dated two months before Robin's death, she left land she had bought in Colorado to Terry, as well as some specific items of jewelry and furniture. Robin's son could then have right of first refusal on the rest of her items. If he didn't want anything, it went to Terry. Glenn, Devereaux, Sandy, Louise, and now Robin. And we're not done yet. Terry's 50-year-old husband, Don Hoffman, was having some health issues. Leg pain, shortness of breath, illness in the belief system of Terry Hoffman was a symptom of negative energy. And in June 1987, Terry started complaining that Don had lowered her consciousness because he didn't treat her well and he was negative. Two of the people she told this to were David and Glenda Goodman, and we know this because this couple journaled everything. On September 17, 1988, a maid at a hotel found Don fully dressed in bed, dead of an apparent drug overdose. This scene closely resembled one from many years earlier, the death of Glenn Cooley. There was a small tape recorder on the bedside table, as well as a pen and paper. Don had written a three-page suicide note on the legal pad. It said he had terminal cancer. Don repeated that same thing on the tape-recorded messages he left behind. He said that three doctors told him he had cancer, but then, for some reason, they all destroyed his medical records. On autopsy, it was found that Don did not have cancer. There is no evidence he ever received a diagnosis from a doctor. Like Robin, he believed he was terminally ill for no apparent reason. But Terry told Don's adult children that Don actually did have cancer, but the Black Lords had hidden it from the medical examiner. In the will, everything was left to Terry. In March 1989, six months after Don's death, his children filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Terry. 
They said she caused or contributed, not just to his death, but to the deaths of others, through hypnosis, manipulation, and mind control. Two months after filing that, they filed to have his will overturned. The same lawyer who represented Sandy Cleaver's brother years earlier represented Don Hoffman's children. He believed back then that Terry was responsible, and he still believed it. And he finally had another shot at holding her responsible. While the wrongful death suit was still in court, there were two more deaths of followers of conscious development. David and Glenda Goodman. They had met through the group. Terry had told them they had been married in a previous life. In fact, they had been Adam and Eve. Both were devoted to conscious development, which by extension means also to Terry. They kept meticulous journals indicating that they meditated three times a day for hours. They took direction from God and through spiritual masters on everything from spiritual beliefs to which curtains to buy. Most of the communication came through Glenda because David didn't have such a direct communication with the masters because he was still going through some tests to increase his spirituality. Many of the tests were financial in nature, like how he was supposed to buy Terry a new car and how he was supposed to give half of his wealth to God. Terry, obviously, would be the one collecting God's share. Over the years, David and Glenda had given Terry over $100,000 in donations and for counseling sessions. This is common in cults and cult-like organizations. They may accept gifts, but it's hard to convince people to donate more than a normal amount. Certainly hard to get more than the 10% most churches will ask for. So there will be classes, tests, books, jewelry, sessions, all these things you need to pay for. So it feels like you are paying for goods or a service and not just giving money away. But these items, these classes, these sessions, they will be priced way higher than they're worth if you took a comparable class from a secular entity. For instance, Scientology. They charge $800 an hour for an auditing session, which is essentially therapy. Average rates for therapy in the U.S. is $60 to $120 a session. And money wasn't the only thing David and Glenda gave up for the group. The belief that relationships impeded spiritual growth led Glenda to send her daughters to live with their father and only allowed them to visit her for two weeks a year. They had cut out pretty much everyone else in their lives, to the point that no one even noticed when they went missing for over a month in the fall of 1989. They weren't found until late November, when an awful smell was reported as coming from the Goodman's house. The fire department knocked down their door and found them both dead at the age of 48. They had been there dead for over a month, and it appeared to have been a double suicide. There was no note left behind, but their journals showed an increased focus on the afterlife and a purple paradise that Terry had told them was awaiting them. There was also a letter Glenda wrote to her son in the trash can where she wrote openly about depression and how 
she wished she had the guts to kill herself. And Terry found herself once again the recipient of their wills and under public scrutiny. David Goodman's family filed a lawsuit against her, and the district attorney opened a criminal investigation into all of the deaths. In February 1990, with Terry under investigation, a former member of Conscious Development went to the police. She said that she went with Terry to the cabin where Glenn was back in 1977. Glenn was alive when they got there and told them he had taken the drugs. The woman said that Terry told her not to worry about this because Glenn was on his way to the next level. This directly contradicts Terry's story that she had no idea Glenn was going to take his life until the next day when she found the note. With the spotlight on the group, two more deaths and a disappearance among group members became public. First was 33-year-old Mary Levinson. Mary died of an intentional drug overdose in November 1987, several months after Robin had taken her life. She left a taped message to her parents and was found in a motel room, closely mirroring the death of Don Hoffman. On the tape, Mary said she had given away all of her money already to charitable organizations. She would not name them because she was afraid her family would go try to get the money back. And she had a sizable sum of money. Mary had just settled her divorce and walked away with $125,000 in cash, and it was all gone. Not only had Mary given away the money she had, she had sold most of her valuable belongings. She used her mother's credit card to buy $3,200 in fine jewelry. The money and the jewelry were all gone. Terry Hoffman denied receiving any of it. Mary had also changed her life insurance policy less than two weeks before her death. She removed her brother and named an ex-boyfriend as the beneficiary. And where did she meet that ex-boyfriend? He was a member of Conscious Development. By getting rid of everything she owned, including cash, there was no will for Mary's family to contest. Interesting, since this was an issue Terry ran into before family contesting the will. This time, no one even knows where the money went, since Mary never said, and Terry, well, she said she didn't get it, but there is no proof one way or the other. The next case tied to conscious development is the disappearance of Charles Southern Jr., and this would eventually be featured on Unsolved Mysteries. Charles was a follower of Terry Hoffman in the Chicago group, and he was soon a meditation teacher within the group. At some point in 1987, Charles was hospitalized after being found wandering Chicago in a state of confusion. His family visited him daily at the hospital, and so did members of Conscious Development. But his family said he was falling away from the group. In December 1987, Charles planned a trip to India for two weeks. His mom wanted to visit him before he went, but he said he wasn't feeling well and canceled the visit. They assumed he went on his trip, but when they didn't hear from him when he should have been back, 
the family went to the apartment. They found Charles's passport there, and there were no stamps indicating recent travel. They found a vial in a drawer with a drug in it. They had it tested, and it was similar to a poisonous plant extract. They also found his winter coat folded inside out and laid on a ceremonial stool. Charles was fascinated with other cultures and symbolism. This particular one was a Nigerian symbol of death, according to what the family was told. There were two notes found in Charles's home. They were barely legible. The notes mentioned Terry twice and named her the executor of his estate. Another part said, I came under a bad influence and I was trying to fight it myself. To me, that sounds similar to the group's teaching on Black Lords. Charles is still missing, and his family believes Terry and or her group have something to do with it. The third instance that came out was the murder of Jill Bounds. She was found in her home having been beaten to death. It looked like someone may have entered through a window, but on closer inspection, That looked like it might have been staged. The screen window frame had been taken out and an item under the window had been moved. Both of those things would have been nearly impossible to have done from the outside. It seems like it was done on the inside to make this look like a break-in when it was more likely Jill let the killer in. There were and are some viable suspects in this case who have nothing to do with Terry Hoffman. Jill had some exes who harbored ill will. But she had been in the conscious development inner circle and left. She had gone to visit Terry a couple of months before her death after having not seen her for years. And strangely, of the few things taken from the home were pages from Jill's 1979 journal, which were written while she was in the group. Because of the blood smears on the journal, the police are confident they were ripped out by the murderer after the attack. The police ruled out a random burglary, even though some jewelry was taken. But the items taken were in a spot in Jill's laundry room where she kept them tucked away and somewhat hidden. Someone had to know to look there. And it wasn't like the person was just grabbing any jewelry they found. Jill was wearing a Cartier bracelet, and the killer didn't touch it. Cartier bracelets cost thousands of dollars, and it seems odd to leave that behind if they were after jewelry. No one has been charged, but some think Jill's death was orchestrated by Terry. The missing journal pages from when Jill was in the group seem to circumstantially point in that direction. And the killer took specific jewelry from the home while leaving other jewelry behind. And while no one says it outright what the hidden jewelry was, you have to wonder if it had to do with Terry because we know she made and sold a lot of jewelry. It does seem like a big coincidence that... Jill was murdered months after meeting with Terry for the first time in years. 
And that's Terry's defense to some of this. Yes, it's coincidence. And from what I can tell, the police are not leaning towards Terry or her group as a suspect, but rather looking at Jill's exes. This case is still unsolved. Terry also denies involvement in anyone's suicide, but she doesn't say those are coincidences. She says that is sort of how the group is set up. There were several suicides of her members, but that's because the group attracted people who were depressed and in pain. She offered healing to people who were already hurting, and she couldn't save everyone. And Terry insisted she had no control over who anyone left their money to. The DA spent four years investigating Terry Hoffman, and in the end, they couldn't draw a straight line from Terry to any of the deaths. As for the civil lawsuits filed by the families, they got halted in October 1991 when Terry filed for bankruptcy. Because there may be additional debts, creditors, loss of assets, etc. in the bankruptcy, it effectively pauses actions against Terry while it all gets sorted out. Terry filed for Chapter 13 bankruptcy, which would let her reorganize her debt and make payments back while keeping her physical assets. Basically, a Chapter 13 bankruptcy leverages your future earnings and makes it easier to pay things back. But rule number one of bankruptcy law is be transparent. Hide nothing that has to do with your current or future financial state because the hammer comes down if you do. And that's what happened to Terry. She didn't disclose two major things. One was a deal with her attorney to pay him 15% of any book or movie deal she got over the rights to her life story. That deal does impact her future earnings potential and needs to be disclosed. Terry also did not disclose that she had power of attorney over her current boyfriend's bank accounts giving her control of his money, and that's really the one that is the biggest deal. In all, Terry was accused of hiding over $120,000 in assets. When the judge found out, he changed her bankruptcy to Chapter 7. The way Chapter 7 works is that they seize your non-exempt assets to pay the debts immediately rather than let you pay back over time. Texas has pretty generous exemption laws, so Terry would be able to keep things like her house, one of her vehicles, and quite a bit of her personal property, but the rest would be seized. In addition to the bankruptcy being changed, Terry was arrested and charged with bankruptcy fraud. She was 55 years old at the time. Terry's defense was that these were honest mistakes. Fraud requires intent, and she did not intend to defraud anyone. She just didn't know that these things had to be disclosed. At trial, Terry was convicted. She was fined, and she was sent to prison for 16 months. She did appeal her conviction, and though she had served her time by the time the appeal went through the process, she did win. 
the appellate court found that there wasn't enough evidence to prove she intended on defrauding the court. So even though she had served her time, the conviction was overturned. Terry went back to giving her counseling sessions, though her group was a fraction of what it once was. In 2002, at the age of 64, Terry married her final husband, 56-year-old Roger Keenly. Terry's life had been surrounded by so much death that it's hard to believe it's all a coincidence. It's even hard to believe that it's just because she ministered to those who were already struggling. At the very least, her teaching about Black lords did damage to people's mental health rather than offering them answers or healing. But when you try to make that into a murder case, the evidence just is not strong enough. And there is a case to be made for some coincidence here because we know there were some deaths that Terry had nothing to do with. Her son, for instance, he fell on a construction site nowhere near where she was. And there are no indications it was anything except a tragic accident. And her oldest daughter, Kathy, as well. In 2010, Kathy Wilder was 55 years old, and she was killed by a neighbor. She felt bad for 19-year-old Randy Torres, who seemed to be struggling, and he was, with severe mental illness. She accepted his invitation to come over for a Bible study in the hopes she could help him, and he murdered her. Randy had no connection to Terry or conscious development. Death surrounded Terry, and if you wrote a book on this and called it fiction, the critics would complain it was too far-fetched to believe. In the end, Terry was never found criminally responsible for any of the deaths. She continued to manage her group, even as it shrank, until her death on October 31, 2015. Less than two years later, according to the Texas Database of Corporations, conscious development was dissolved. Terry's obituary praises her work. It also claims she has won several accolades, but I fact-checked that. The four accolades named are all those vanity who's-who-style biographical publications. They aren't an award you win, but rather something you buy. Look up American Biographical Institute online to learn more. Three of the awards were from them. The obituary also said Terry was a successful businesswoman, which I think is something you can decide for yourself based on your personal definition of success. I have found the older I've gotten and the more life experience I've had, the definition of success is more a moral one than anything else. But I doubt any of the accolades, any of the successes, will be the lasting legacy of Terry Hoffman. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. 
And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. <laughs> 